welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Our reading for this morning is from 1 Peter 4, and I'll read verses 12 through 18. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. As you see on the screen there, the, the title and the topic this morning is Suffering as a Christian. 
And the reality is that all of us, uh, at some point in our life, many times in our life, will experience some form of suffering, some degree of suffering, some obviously more than others. Some uh, faithful believers will experience uh, severe trouble, suffering, whether it's uh, physical or some type of economic pressures or other troubles that we face. These are things that are common to us. And so this topic of suffering as a Christian is a very large topic. So this morning will only scratch the surface, but I hope that uh, we can leave with uh, some basic principles that will help us as believers to have a, a biblical mindset about suffering. What is God revealed to us as his people, his church? And how does he want us to think about these things? Well, most of us are, are aware that uh, there's many Christians who believe that it's not God's will for a believer to suffer, especially as it relates to uh, physical sickness or disease, those, those kinds of things. Especially those in the Word of Faith movement have the idea that uh, we should be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And, and if you're not experiencing these blessings from God, then there's something wrong with you. There's, you don't have enough faith or you haven't claimed the... Um, the victory, so to speak, or some other statement as such. And so there is this expectation from God that God is going to bless his children, those that are obeying him and living for him in such a way that they don't uh, have these kinds of problems. And so there is this, I believe, a, a wrong expectation of uh, God in providing such a a life for us. Well, most of us would reject that kind of thinking as unbiblical. We, we recognize that's obviously not what we should be expecting of God. It's not what he talks about, not what he teaches us to, how he teaches us to think. But we might also be guilty of having the wrong expectations of God as it relates to suffering. We may have allowed ourselves to uh, drift into this uh, thinking of that if I'm living for God, if I'm if I'm trying to obey God and honor Him, then then I should be relatively free of any major trouble. In other words, it's easy to have a general expectation as a believer that that God's going to make everything go smoothly. But it's easy to fall into a pattern of thinking that God's going to keep any major trouble out of my life. There's not going to be any tragedy in my life. And when that proves to not be true, we have a, we have a major problem, don't we? Because we've, we've built a, a false expectation of what God has committed to do for us or not do for us. You may, you may even think when you come to a verse like Romans 8, 28, where we read, um, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You, you may, be, may be inclined to think that that good that he talks about there means smooth sailing, that everything is going to be you know, nice and good and, and all work out for us. 
but uh, it's easy to have a wrong expectation of what good means, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, we, we can easily you know, absorb almost this idea that good means good health, uh, prosperity, you know, you know, no problems, no difficulties, children that turn out the way we, you know, we expect, and all of these things that uh, we consider to be good. But the good that God works for us is not without suffering. I don't know if you... I'm going to say that again, just in case you didn't quite sink in. The good that God is working for us, as, as that verse promises, is not without suffering. In other words, suffering often is part of what God is working together for our good. When he says those who all things work together, it's the good and the bad and all the things in between that God is working together for our good. And God often uses suffering as a tool for our good. In Romans 8, that section, the end of Romans 8 in particular, that where we find Romans 8, 28, that, that passage, if you go back and look at it, is full of hope and future glory, this expectation that God gives us as believers. And yet it's written in the context of suffering. He begins in verse 18 like this. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he ends the chapter by saying that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in that whole section there, where we're, we're admonished to look to our future glory, glory to, that we'll have with him. And he, he doesn't say to us at the end of that chapter 8, we're not going to have any trouble, we're not going to have any pain, no difficulty, no death, all of these things that he describes in, in chapter 8 there. And I want you to go back and remind yourself again of that passage. And I'm not going to take time this morning to read it. But he, but he lists several things there that are just bad things, suffering. And he doesn't say he's going to separate us from those things. He's going to keep us from those things. No, he says, even in all of that, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And so that is the, uh, the expectation of Paul. That is the teaching that we have from Paul. And God used him as a, as a great example to us how we should think about suffering. What should our mindset be as believers uh, that are seeking to live for the Lord. Well, in our text uh, this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, we realize that the believers there at Ephesus were struggling a little bit, evidently, with uh, this issue. And in particular, why was Paul suffering the way he was? He's now, remember, he, he's in the, about five years of being imprisoned. And he's now writing this letter from his imprisonment in Rome. And evidently, it was during that time where he was under house arrest. And so he had, he had some more freedom to, um, to write, and uh, even people could come and uh, visit, and he could teach. And, uh, but Paul begins there in verse 1 by saying, For this reason, 
Let's check Ephesians 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And notice there he's connecting what he's saying to what he was written before. He says, for this reason, although it's a new chapter, it's really just continuing on into with the same topic that he was writing in chapter 2, and especially the the last part of, of chapter 2. If you remember, in that section, he's he's talking to the Gentiles in particular, but also the Jews, and he's saying that both have now been reconciled unto the Lord Jesus Christ and, and together make up this one body, the church. And he's getting ready now to say, uh, for this reason, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's getting ready to pray for them or, or record his prayer for them. And that, that we see in verse 14. You see there, he takes that up again, for this reason, and there we see the prayer. But, but when Paul says, I, uh, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, it just takes him on a, another uh, path. <laughs> he, he just begins on a new long sentence. In the Greek, uh, these verses from 2 down to 13 is one long, one long sentence again. And it seems like it's a total different topic from this uh, this idea, but it's really very much the same thing that he's been talking about before, and some of it is repetitious from what he had talked about before, but this <clears throat> section is, is often referred to as a digression from his uh, from his prayer that he's, that he's getting ready to pray, it's a, or a parenthesis of, of information that Paul includes here, but it's a wonderful digression, isn't it? Obviously, uh, writing uh, by the, the inspiration of God, and it's what God wanted him to, uh, to write about. But if you notice that the, um, this section, he, he reminds them why he's in prison. And so that uh, introducing himself or describing himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus puts him on this on, on this uh, subject to talk about why he's in prison and he was in prison for them and he talks about his ministry and and uh, what it means to them particularly as the uh, as the gentiles in uh, verse 13 he ends this uh, section by saying so i ask you not to lose heart over what i am suffering for you which is your glory. So you can see that this was something that Paul wanted to address to them, although he doesn't go into detail about his own suffering. He just mentions it in passing almost. But he, he wants them to, <clears throat> to understand. And it would be natural that they would struggle with understanding uh, why God was doing what he was doing why God allowed Paul to be taken prisoner and kept for, for all that time. We struggle with the same things, don't we? When God does things, we, we don't understand why God does that or why God allows that to continue. And, and we often wonder, why, Lord, do you do that? And it looks to me like it would be better this way or that way. And we, we can't see, can we? We can't understand why God does what he does. We know that in, in 2 Corinthians 
Some of Paul's enemies were saying, well, Paul's not really an apostle. If he were a real apostle, he wouldn't be suffering the way he's suffering. So you'd see this, this attitude that if you're really serving God, you're not going to be having all of these persecutions and troubles that he's having. And there were many, many believers that must have thought, well, why doesn't God um, free Paul from prison? Surely he could be more effective uh, as, as, this, you know, as an apostle, uh, preaching and teaching and starting churches. And we face many times the same reality because it is often impossible for us to know what God is doing and why he's doing it. But as you read from Paul, his letters to the churches everywhere, and in all that he writes, he's always leading us to trust in God's sovereign plan for us. And he, by example, is doing that very thing, and especially so when we don't see, when we don't understand. Notice that Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul was in prison because of the Jews. You remember, as he went down to Jerusalem, they, they, they made false accusations against him and stirred up a, a crowd and tried to kill him. But he didn't consider himself a prisoner of the Jews. He wasn't bitter towards the Jewish people. He had a burden and a compassion for them and uh, was always trying to win them. He was in a Roman prison, but from his perspective, he wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Christ. And Paul was able to rest in that reality. So a pastor, Ray, Ray Stedman, that's now with the Lord, he writes, and so it's a bit of a lengthy section here, but I, I think it's good enough that we should, uh, we should hear it. He writes, Paul was apparently in Rome, a prisoner of Caesar, awaiting trial before Nero. But never once does he say that he was a prisoner of Caesar. He's always a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the reason is obvious when you read his letters. He saw that Caesar was not the one who had the final say about him. Jesus did. The duration of his confinement was not determined by Caesar, but by the Lord Jesus. As Paul came to understand the one whom he served, he knew that Jesus is in control of history. He saw him as John did in the book of Revelation, as sitting on his throne, holding the reins of government in his hands. He is the one who opens and no man shuts, and who shuts and no one opens, who orders and his will is carried out. Paul knew, therefore, that any time the Lord Jesus decided Paul's imprisonment would be of no longer value, he would be set free. That when the Lord Jesus spoke, Caesar acted. Therefore, he never saw himself as being the prisoner of Caesar. This is a tremendous lesson to us, he continues, who sometimes becomes worried and anxious about what the political powers do and are doing in the world today. Would that we had the faith of this mighty apostle who understood so clearly that Caesar was not in control but the Lord is. Amen. Well, this teaching that suffering and trouble, that was the end of the quote, by the way. <laughs> this teaching that 
suffering and trouble is something outside of God's will on the life of the believer is just not, it's just not biblical. I mean, you can find some verses here and there and support your calls, but this thinking, it leads to all kinds of wrong expectations of God and has led many to be disillusioned with God and even angry with God and having the attitude, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. You would even hear, and you can easily read of pastors and it's even booked by this title that says you need to forgive God. Such an idea is totally foreign to Scripture. Uh, and I would even say it's a, an insult on the, the name and character of the Lord. It implies that God has done something wrong or has failed us in some way. And why many, many that would hold this view, they would agree that God cannot sin or, or do wrong they still hold to this idea that if you feel that God has let you down, you need to let him off the hook. You need to forgive him. Such thinking exhibits a high view of man and a very low view of God, doesn't it? Can you imagine Peter or Paul writing to a church about their suffering and saying, you need to let God off the hook. You need, you need to forgive God. Absolutely not. It's totally foreign to the, the mindset, the thinking of the Scripture. What we hear from these men in regard to suffering is regardless of how difficult life becomes, regardless of the persecution, God never treats us unjustly or sends trial into our lives without a loving purpose on His part. They teach us to rejoice in what God is doing. Not rejoice in the suffering itself, but rejoice in what God is going to accomplish in our lives through what he brings into our lives. And to recognize that it's for our good and his glory. And indeed, God may or may not provide healing. He may or may not remove the suffering, but he always gives grace, doesn't he? He is with us to help us and to enable us and to grow us in our faith. Well, there's another reason why uh, many believers stumble and struggle over this, uh, the reality of, of suffering and have a false expectation of God. And that relates to the failure to, to, to see the difference in God's dispensation or administration in different times of uh, history in the affairs of his people and how he administers his dealings with them. And so we, we see that oftentimes, if you, if you read the, the writings, many times the things that fly around on um, WhatsApp or Facebook, they're filled with uh, references to promises that were given to the nation of Israel, for example, and they are applied to the church. So what we're talking about is the, the difference between how God administered his, uh, his expectation of us, his um, promises to us, between, for example, the old covenant and the new covenant, between the law and the church age in which we are now living. And so there is some 
some major differences. And the promises given in those times are, they have to be taken in the context of when and who they're written to. Even, even those of a, that hold to a covenantal uh, view of theology will accept that God's administration, has, there is change in God's administration from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, for example. They, they would see as, as much change as we would as, as a, from a dispensational view, but they still acknowledge that there is this change. If you go back to the, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter eight, you, you, uh, 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see there in that chapter where Moses recounts for them and gives an overview really of what he's been, been admonishing them about as they're getting ready to go now and take possession of the promised land. And he says that there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. And he, and he lays it out there and he gives examples after example. And about a, about a fourth of, the, of the, the content is blessings and the, and, the, and the majority of the content has to do with the curses if they don't obey. But if you fail to distinguish between these promises of blessing for the nation of Israel and what God promises to us as the church, you are likely to be disappointed with God because your expectations of God are going to be different than what he has committed himself um, to do for us. In other words, if you try to, <clears throat> to claim in promises intended for Israel that uh, if you obey me, then I'm going to uh, uh, take care of your health and make you wealthy and prosperous. If you go back and look at those promises in Deuteronomy, that's what he's promising. He's promising them the health, wealth, and prosperity if they obey. They're going to keep their, he's going to defeat their enemies. He's going to bless their crops. He's going to give them health. He's going to do all of these blessings for these physical blessings that in the land that God promised. But those are not the, bless, the blessings or the promises of blessing that God has given to us as his church. Our blessings are far greater than physical healing and prosperity. We have the spiritual blessing of the, the indwelling presence of God through the Holy Spirit. We have what he laid out for us in chapter 1 of this letter, the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You remember that, uh, that, uh, that promise and that reminder, this living hope of the resurrection from the dead and eternal life in Jesus Christ. That is what he's promised to us. And we, he, he holds for us this, this promise of future glory, this future new heaven and a new earth, this future eternity with him. And in that there will be, no uh, sorrow. There will be no sickness. There will be nothing that defiles, the Lord says. In our text um, this morning, if you go back there and, and, and notice, um, uh, he, he says that <clears throat> there is a, a mystery. Some of you probably like watching um, mystery movies or programs where there's, there's something that you have to figure out. There's a, there's a whodunit. In the, in the plot. Well, Paul talks about a mystery here. It's not the same kind of mystery. But he says there's a mystery of the gospel. 
then Paul, as you know, was used by God to reveal to us God's plan and good news of um, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish in the church. And there were certain things that were hidden from the believers under the old covenant. God had these things in his plan, but he had not revealed all of his plan. As you think back and look in the Old Testament, what is revealed there, you see that these believers had been given shadows of Christ. They were, they were types of Christ. There were promises of a, of a coming Redeemer, a Messiah, but they did not have all the revelation that we do. They were not able to, to see and understand all that uh, Paul was used by God to reveal. And as we get into this context of uh, chapter this is first part of chapter 3, you'll see as he talks about uh, some of these things that have been revealed. But notice how he writes, in, or how Peter writes in, um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, as he talks about uh, this reality of what God has revealed to us that was beforehand hidden. That's what he means by a mystery. 1 Peter 1 Verse 10 and 11, it begin there. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's talking about the prophets from the Old Testament. He said they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, those, those things don't go together. At least they don't seem like they should go together. The glory of this Messiah, and yet the suffering of this Messiah. And as they, as they even as God used them to prophesy these things and to re- record this revelation of, of future coming of this Messiah, they, they couldn't figure out all that God was revealing. They didn't understand it yet. It wasn't enough revelation all out. It was still a mystery to them. He continues in verse 12 and says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In other words, there was a lot of what was written was not for them, but for us, who would be able to see the prophecy and then see the fulfillment in Christ. He says, In these things they have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What a privilege it is to be living in this time where we have the full revelation of God's word. And Paul, as he talks about the mystery, this is what he means. He's, he's talking about things that were hidden in the plan of God that is now revealed. And Paul was used by God primarily to be the one that would reveal these truths to the church. And what a privilege it is for us to, to have these truths and to be living in this time of the abundance of God's grace. And of course, God's grace was manifested in the Old Testament as well. Everywhere you look, you see God's grace. The very covenant with Abraham was a, a gracious provision of God. But as we look at what he has now done in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that now God's grace is in full display. 
He sent his son to die for us, that we could be forgiven, that we could have a a relationship with him through Christ, that we could be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Wow, that it causes the grace that was revealed in the Old Testament to be just in the shadows. When we realize the full bright light of God's grace that's now revealed, this is why Paul would say in Ephesians 3 and verse 2, that he is a minister of the stewardship of God's grace. And so Paul wants to remind them of what that means for them, that he is now a steward uh, of, or he has been made a minister, a steward, so to speak. In other words, he has a responsibility of this administration of God's grace. It's interesting that he, he uses that title. Um, this uh, this word uh, that's translated there, stewardship, and it's a good word. It, it, it in the Greek it's oikonomia, and, and you can almost hear in that the word um, economy, English word economy. It, it's the idea of an administration. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a management. It's a responsibility that was given to Paul that he would um, proclaim this grace of God. And this is why Paul was in prison. He wasn't there because he had done something wrong. He wasn't there because he had disobeyed God or, or that he was just a troublemaker. He was there because he was obeying God's will. And in uh, Philippians chapter 1, he also writes about that. And we, we uh, believe that Philippians was written at the same time uh, when he was in prison. And he says there in, uh, in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, such is the perspective that Paul had in his suffering. He would be the first to emphasize, though, that his perspective is because of God's grace. It wasn't because that he was just smarter or, or, or braver or more brilliant or, or he just more, had more faith. No, he would attribute it all, and he does, to the grace of God. We, too, must live in the power of God's grace, and especially when we are facing in various kinds of trouble, various kinds of suffering. And by God's grace, we can live in, rest in God's provision for us, rest in his care for us. We can rest in the reality that he is in control and he is sovereign and he loves us. But lest someone misunderstand this morning, we're not saying that there's any virtue in suffering itself. None of us want suffering, and it is certainly right to try to avoid suffering. Paul himself avoided suffering where he could, and he didn't relish the idea of, of uh, being persecuted and, and having all these troubles. But he didn't, he didn't allow it to keep him from obeying God. And when he did suffer, he, he shows us by example that he didn't say, God, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> As if uh, God was mistreating him somehow. It is right for us to ask God to remove suffering and to provide healing and to change circumstances. 
But we must follow our Lord's example also when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, right? Because we don't always know. Matter of fact, oftentimes we don't know what God's perfect will is. Not for us and many times not for others. Sometimes we can, we can clearly see what God's will would be and we can, we can give counsel and we can admonish ourselves and say, this is God's will, walk you in it. But many times we don't know exactly what God is doing, especially as it comes to suffering and difficulty. In those times, we must trust ourselves fully to the Lord. Paul, in that, in that passage in Philippians 1, verse 21, he continues to write about his present situation there in prison. And he says it this way, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know that, you know that verse. He's basically saying, if God allows me to live, I want to live for Christ. It's all about Him. But if I die, it's gain because I'll go to be with him. May the Lord help us as we seek to follow in this example of trusting God, trusting God in every every area of our life. Let me close with, with just mentioning some various ways in which we suffer. I've listed four ways here that uh, kind of kind of wraps up the the various things that we face, and you've probably uh, faced at least some of these. We suffer because we live in a, a fallen world. There's disease and sickness and trouble. It's all part of this fallen world that we live in. One day, God's going to create a new heaven and new earth, and there's not going to be any more of these troubles. But until then, we we live in this world and it's a, it's a wrong expectation to think that God is going to keep us from the troubles in this world. Uh, many have the idea that a fallen world, in other words, it's obviously came as a result of sin, of Adam and Eve's sin. But if you go back and remember what happened, that God brought the curse on the world. It wasn't Satan who cursed the world. It wasn't Satan who caused or brought the, uh, the trouble upon creation. He didn't bring the curse upon man. He was the instigator, yes, but God is sovereign. He's the one, one who brought the curse upon his own creation. And we live in that world, and we trust God in that reality. So sometimes it's just because we we're in the world that we we struggle along with the world. This COVID-19, <laughs> it's part of a fallen world, isn't it? And we're all struggling. Some of you struggled more than others. Some of, some of you uh, have been sick as a result of it. And the rest of us just have to wear masks and go through all these gymnastics to try to, try to keep from getting it. Sometimes we suffer, <clears throat> secondly, because of our own bad decisions. Uh, sometimes we do something and later wonder, why in the world did I do that? <laughs> Sometimes we, we just um, we don't think before we jump. And God often protects us in spite of our own foolishness, but he doesn't always. You know, Kelsey, um, she used to work in the ER. And uh, in, the, in the ER, you see a, a lot of people coming in because uh, they didn't think before they jumped. And, and sometimes our, our suffering is just because of that. We, we didn't... Uh, we didn't make good decisions. We, we live with those consequences sometimes. 
Sometimes we suffer because it is the direct discipline from God. Uh, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, verse 6. And so sometimes that's the reality that God is using the, the rod in our lives to bring us back to him. And then fourthly, sometimes we suffer because of our faith. It's a, it's, it's a direct suffering because we are obeying the Lord. In Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, verse 3 and 12, verse 12, Paul reminds Timothy, this young pastor, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we can expect that to some degree in the world that we're living in. And it seems like our world is moving in a direction that we should expect more and more opposition to a, a biblical theology, a biblical uh, morality. And if we hold to that, if we stand firm upon the truth of God's word, we're going we're gonna to feel that pushback from the world. And we may even face uh, some persecution. We may, we may struggle with... Uh, keeping a job, we may we may find that uh, we we can't prosper like others who don't have the same moral uh, quorums that we do. We may face opposition in some other way as a result of our faith. But so God uses all of these various forms in our life, and He uses to accomplish His purposes for our spiritual growth and dependence upon the Lord. Josh began reading for us this morning, 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Let me just read you two of those verses in closing to remind you of what we read then. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see that there, the, the mindset, the attitude of suffering as a Christian, you see there the trust in God. Don't think it's strange. Don't think it's somehow God has let you down or God's failed you. No, God is right where he's always been accomplishing his purposes in our life. And we're admonished to, uh, to trust him through the difficulties and trials of life and keep our eyes focused on the, the hope, the eternal hope that we have in Christ, the eternal glory that we will share together with him and to live in that prospect, in that promise from the Lord. We pray together. Thank you, Lord, for that hope that we have. Lord, in the midst of the troubles, it's hard to lift our eyes up. But I pray, Father, that we might do that very thing that you've admonished us to do, to lift our eyes up and to see Christ, to see him, him suffering for us, that we could have life and that he has given us uh, forgiveness. He's giving us a redemption. He's provided for us an eternity together with him. Lord, may we be motivated today as we struggle and as we face various trials. May we be motivated, Lord, to lift up our eyes and to see our heavenly home and our future glory. 
And may we add to that glory by living for you now. May we, Father, live in such a way that others around us can see that uh, we are putting our trust in you and that we're rejoicing in you and what you're doing for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.